Welcome to a six-string hayride, your classic country, classic western, and classic rockabilly podcast. Join your hosts, Chris Wainscott and Jim O'Malley, for a journey through the world of mama, prison, trains, horses. We've got your hillbilly Shakespeare's from Jimmy Rogers to Hank Williams to John Prine. You want the best guitar pickers in town? From Chet Atkins to Cliff Gallup to Luther Perkins, we've got you covered. All the crazy drinking, dancing, honky-talking, deal-with-the-devil stuff you're going to pull on Saturday night, we're going to help you slip that past your Lord on Sunday morning. Climb aboard the cart. Let's go for a ride. On June 19, 1879, while addressing the graduating class of Michigan Military Academy, famed Civil War General William Tecumseh Sherman uttered a phrase which remains in the vernacular today, War is hell. The entire quote is, I've been where you are now, and I know just how you feel. It's entirely natural that there should beat in the breast of every one of you a hope and desire that someday you can use the skill you have acquired here. Suppress it. You don't know the horrible aspects of war. I've been through two wars, and I know. I've seen cities and homes in ashes. I've seen thousands of men lying on the ground, their dead faces looking up at the skies. I tell you, war is hell. Today on the Hayride, we're riding into the depths of hell. We're going to talk about the harsh impact of the consequences of war. For so many survivors, the war didn't stop when the fighting ceased overseas. It followed them home and continued to eat away at them until nothing was left of them or their families. For the loved ones of those who didn't make it home, they were often left to suffer until they could no longer bear the pain. Today, we're going to talk about three songs. Sam Stone by John Prine, which will describe the way in which Vietnam vets carried problems home, which destroyed their families. The Ballad of Ira Hayes by Johnny Cash, which tells the tale of a man who went from celebrated hero to forgotten zero, and Dear Uncle Sam by Loretta Lynn, which centers on those who are left behind. So climb on board the cart and let's go for a ride. Chris, I think you're absolutely right to start out the conversation by remembering the words of General Sherman. It seems maybe simplistic, but it's also the reality that covers a lot of ground war is hell and in film and certainly in country music you see many attempts to address stories of war uh, to address the stories of the people who fight these wars and become veterans there is an occasional recent tendency in country music uh, Toby Keith and Alan Jackson, I am looking at you to kind of romanticize or even glorify the idea of specifically Americans at war or the idea of Americans kicking somebody's ass. Gentlemen, you could not be more wrong and more ridiculous. If you're leaning towards glorifying, romanticizing, if you're leaning towards a way of discussing these things like you're talking about the World Cup or a football result or anything like that, you really don't talk 
And you certainly don't listen to any veterans that might be around for you to engage with. Both Chris and I have had family members that have been in the service, uh, specifically both our dads, mine in the Pacific in World War II, for Chris, Vietnam. We both had uncles who have served scattered across World War II, Korea, and Vietnam, Navy, Army, and Air Force. So lots of ground covered there in the family history. And to my recollection, my dad, um, the uncles, it's not something that they talked about hardly ever. And when they did, it wasn't rah-rah, look what I did. It wasn't a chest puffing, how tough I am, how righteous I was. It was a somber and reverent tone towards something that no human should have to endure and that humans are still struggling to find a way to discuss and explain and to comfort one another. I wear the black in mourning for the lives that could have been. Each week we lose a hundred fine young men. And I wear it for the thousands who have died. Believing that the Lord was on their side. And here at the Hayride, this is not about the politics or the who you voted for or who started it. It's about the people, the friends, the relatives, the neighbors who actually have to go out and deal with the ramifications of other people's decisions, the people who serve, the people who become veterans. And the storytelling we have today in country music is something that really looks at and questions and forces us to focus on the human cost. You have Ira Hayes, an American Indian who is part of the flag raising in Iwo Jima, one of the most awful conflicts of the Pacific War with Japan in the 1940s. Gather around me people, there's a story I would tell. About a brave young Indian, you should remember well. From the land of the Pima Indian, a proud and noble band who farmed the Phoenix Valley in Arizona land. Fought one of the most awful battles of his time to serve this land. And when he came home, it was to racism and disrespect. We have Sam Stone, John Prine, brilliant songwriter, gives us sort of generic veteran, comes home from the time it's written, could be Korea, most definitely Vietnam. Sam Stone came home to his wife and family after serving in the conflict overseas. And the time that he served had shattered all his nerves and left a little shrapnel 
again, the human toll on a veteran who comes home to despair, to no feelings of belonging or redemption, and to drug addiction and poverty. And then we have Loretta Lynn, who on the eve of America's biggest involvement in the war, writes an incredibly hard-hitting piece about the family members, the women who answer the front door back home here when the message arrives that a loved one is not going to be returning home. Dear Uncle Sam, I know you're a busy man And tonight I write to you offer our respect and our attention to these incredible stories. And I can tell you, almost every person who has served that I have had a chance to know and speak to, most recently, my nephew, uh, Josh, one of the most important things that we can do for a person who serves and when they come back home is to respect and remember what they have done. Well, first up is the story of Sam Stone. This is a song that, um, again, our friends at Rolling Stone magazine who love to make lists and count things and quite a few other music magazines almost always put Sam Stone as one of the top 10 saddest songs of all time. And it hits you, it hits you real hard. The basic narrative of the song is Sam Stone is a man who has come home from war. He comes home lonely, isolated, afraid, traumatized. These things manifest themselves as a drug addiction. But the morphine is the pain The song's written in 1971 by John Prine, a favorite son of Chicago, the Maywood Mailman, whatever you want to call him. He is one of those hillbilly Shakespeare's. The man's gift for songwriting and storytelling is really something that few can touch that level of skill. Sam Stone comes home to his wife, his family, his children, but he's constantly alone and in pain. That is the nature of very serious drug addiction. He dies alone. Uh, crying in a really haunting but brilliant kind of a turn of phrase describes it as popped his last balloon. Sam Stone was alone when he popped his last balloon Climbing walls while sitting in a chair so 
goes on to tell us that there is a hole in daddy's arm where all the money goes. Uh, again, Brian is a songwriter. It becomes an incredibly haunting way to describe heroin addiction. He then goes on to say in the song, Jesus Christ died for nothing, I suppose. Now, Prime has taken a lot of heat over the years for that line and that part of the song. There's a hole in daddy's arm where all the money goes. Jesus Christ died for nothing, I suppose. Little pitchers have big ears, don't stop to count the years. Sweet songs never last too long on broken radios. When Johnny Cash covered the song in live performances, he changed the line to Daddy Must Have Suffered a Lot, I Suppose. And at times over the years, him and John Prine would talk about this. You know, he, to his credit, Cash, you know, in 1971, Johnny Cash is ruling the world. He's come off a couple years of live at Folsom, getting married to June Carter, live at San Quentin, and then the TV show. He has fully ingrained himself as the man who carries the flame of the Carter family. And he feels like he should give an explanation to a newcomer in John Pride as to why, you know, he wants to cover the song, but he wants to change a line. Everybody knows the stories about Johnny Cash and his deep religious beliefs. Pride has said from time to time, you know, you don't argue with Johnny Cash. And when we talked about it, I just said, you know, go ahead. Klein's message in that line has never been to knock conventional religion or to knock Jesus in any way. But if you really think about the despair, especially of the Vietnam veteran who comes home and is shunned, is not respected, is not celebrated in any way, uh, in fact, Johnny Cash in the song Drive On comments from the point of view of a veteran, it took them 25 years to remember that I had come home. Well, I got a friend named Whiskey Sam. He was my boony rat buddy for a year and now. He said, I think my country got a little off track. Took him 25 years to welcome me back. Well, when Pride says Jesus Christ died for nothing, I suppose it's from the point of view of a man with no hope, no faith, no sense of redemption. And for people who believe the crucifixion story and who believe that element of Christianity, you folks know that the idea of hope and redemption is very crucial to that story and to the message of what Jesus was offering to people. I will die. You will have the hope. You will have the redemption that stems from that. So that's what Prime's getting at. He was really open about discussing it when it came up over the years. 
it was never quite that mid-60s John Lennon uproar of the Beatles are bigger than Jesus. But if you're writing a song like this at the height of the Vietnam War, while Richard Nixon is campaigning to be reelected as the American president the following year, people are going to ask you a lot of questions about why you're saying what you're saying. Klein really stuck his neck out, and I, I think, and we're going to discuss this through the episode, the mark of any good writer, I don't care if you go back to the old Roman days of uh, our friend Bothius, I don't care if you're talking about Shakespeare, I don't care if you're talking about Mark Twain, when you get into songwriting, you know, somebody like Hank Williams or John Prine, this idea that you can create something that touches people in a, in a really universal kind of way, regardless of your land, your faith, uh, the year that you're born. If you can really touch one of those core emotional nerves in people, and if you can write about it at the peak of its happening, but still convey the sense that the future will Kind of look back. You're creating an artistic sense of hindsight in a live moment. That is one of the most powerful ways that you can determine who's a really good writer and who might not be. All fiction has to be as honest as you can make it. This, I believe. Sam Stone is the literal face of the human cost of a war. This idea of a person coming home from military service and falling into drug addiction, this is not a Vietnam era phenomenon. It's in our cultural vocabulary as such because of when it happened. It's you know, 50, 60 years ago, and you look at the various country and, and rock and roll music and certainly all the films that have come from a reflection on the Vietnam era. But in the American Civil War, the 1860s, you had people coming home addicted to morphine. And in the South, among the former Confederate veterans, it was referred to as the soldier's sickness. Now we would just call it morphine addiction. In World War One, you had people coming home, you know, 1917, 1918, and it, they were determined, they were labeled, they were categorized as having shell shock. And now that's post-traumatic stress disorder. So these things aren't new because there are movies and, and records out that share these stories with us. These are things that have existed pretty much as long as war has existed. There's a condition in combat, most people know about it, it's when a fighting person's nervous system has been stressed to its absolute peak and maximum, can't take any more input. The nervous system has either snapped or is about to snap. In the First World War, that condition was called shell shock. Simple, honest, direct language. Two syllables. Shell shock. Almost sounds like the guns themselves. That was 70 years ago. 
Then a whole generation went by, and the Second World War came along, and we, the very same combat condition was called battle fatigue. Four syllables now. Takes a little longer to say. Doesn't seem to hurt as much. Fatigue is a nicer word than shock. Shell shock. Battle fatigue. Then we had the war in Korea in 1950. Madison Avenue was riding high by that time. And the very same combat condition was called operational exhaustion. Hey, we're up to eight syllables now. And the humanity has been squeezed completely out of the phrase. It's totally sterile now. Operational exhaustion. Sounds like something that might happen to your car. It is an unnatural behavior in humanity. The ways that it impacts and changes people is still just a little bit out of our reach. And to use art and storytelling to try to explain these things, that's just what humans do. And what John Prine does with this story, again, 1971, the war doesn't end for another four years over there. A lot of the stories about the desperation and the tragic consequences that Vietnam veterans wind up in, those stories don't really become a big deal until the 1980s and later. So in Prime, the mark of an incredibly kind heart and an incredibly gifted writer to put such a human face on the cost of having been to war. With a purple heart and a monkey on his back There's a hole in daddy's arm Where all the money goes Jesus Christ died for nothing, I suppose Little pitchers have big ears Don't stop to count the years and every time I hear it, it just rips the heart out. It is sad, and it hurts to listen to, but it's true, and it matters. And I think that creates an equal responsibility in the listener. If Prime was willing to stick his neck out and write this, then we have a cultural obligation to engage and to listen and to remember the very many people that are Sam Stones. Jim, you make some really good points there. You know, you talked a bit about the chorus of the song, uh, specifically the first two lines of the chorus. There's a hole in daddy's arm where all the money goes. Jesus Christ died for nothing, I suppose. And I think your points there are very well made. To me, the last line of the chorus is also very interesting in terms of you know really getting into the heart of who prine was as a writer so the last line of the chorus is sweet songs never last too long on broken radios little pictures have big ears don't stop to count the years sweet songs never last too long on broken radios So if you take a step back and you look at this from the standpoint of the family, uh, 
you know, here's daddy, daddy's great. Daddy goes to war, daddy comes back and daddy is different. Daddy is broken. And so all those things that they loved about daddy and wanted to have back when daddy came home from war, those things were gone. The man who went to war and the man who came home from war were very clearly not the same man. Prine releases this song detailing the problems that so many soldiers faced while the war was still raging. Now, 20 years later or so, the plight of the Vietnam soldiers fairly well accepted. Uh, but this is still the time of Nixon, and Prine is willing to confront the right-wing war machine on their home turf rather than with the safe benefit of hindsight. You know, if you think about all of the movies that came out about the Vietnam War in the later part of the 80s, early part, mid part of the 80s, they still sort of glorified the war to some extent. You know, there was still a lot of the, this is Rambo, watch as he saves the world from evil. And then you shift into that phase of platoon and casualties of war, where finally, societally, we start accepting that there was a lot wrong with this war. Over half of all soldiers who served either tried heroin or opium, and over 20% had become addicted while they were there. So this was a very serious issue. And it's safe to say that at the time that Prine releases this song, it's not something that anybody's really talking about on a wide scale. Certainly, it wasn't something that the public was being made conscious of in a, we need to do something to stop this way. According to NBC News, a member of our United States military commits suicide every 18 hours. Loneliness. Last year, the military recorded more deaths to suicide than combat-related deaths. Suicide stops here. If you or a veteran you know needs help, please call the Military and Veterans Crisis Line at 800-273-8255. Don't let the cycle continue. Uh, Jim, any final thoughts you'd like to add on this one before we move on to Johnny Cash and Ira Hayes? Yes. Um, again, the brilliance of any writer who is able to capture the importance and the intensity of a present moment and also define the impact for years to come. Uh, Brian, just such an extraordinary songwriter, pulls that off. On the same debut album from 1971, John Prine hits us kind of with the other side of the issue where he is an American citizen going after the false patriots and the false flag wavers, the people where it's easy to cheer about a war as long as it doesn't show up anywhere near your front doorstep. Uh, that song is your flag decal won't get you into heaven anymore. But your flag decal won't get you into heaven anymore. They're already overcrowded from your dirty little war. Now Jesus don't like killing, no matter what the reason's for. And your flag decal won't get you into heaven anymore. 
uh, in the seventies, you saw a lot of American flag stickers and a lot of Jesus figurines stuck to dashboards of cars. I guess that was one way of staying safe. Uh, paying attention to the road may have been another, but pride just comes right at you if you are a hypocrite during this era. If you do not have respect for the Sam Stones of the world, Brian, right on the other side of the album, is telling you your flag decal will not get you into heaven anymore. They are already overcrowded from your dirty little war. So listen to Mr. Prime. Show some care. Show some respect for the veterans. If nothing else, be glad that it wasn't you who did the suffering. And please, don't forget who these folks are. Well, up next is... No surprise here. We're going to be talking Johnny Cash again. Uh, over the course of the podcast, I have mentioned a lot of times uh, my childhood experience with Johnny Cash. My dad was a huge fan. You can take all the Grateful Dead people and all the Star Trek people and amp that passion up just a little bit more. And you're almost where my dad was with Johnny Cash. Almost. The big deal with this song is that my dad served in the Navy in the Pacific uh, in the conflict with Japan in the last year of World War II. The story of Ira Hayes is incredibly specific to that war and that corner of the earth where the war was unfolding, the war in the Pacific. 1944, 1945 for the most part. This song got played a lot uh, when I was a kid. Wabash Cannonball, Wreck of the Old 97, those were kind of the big ones. The thing that struck me as a little kid about Ira Hayes was the idea that somebody drowned in two or three inches of water. I had no idea what it really meant to be a drunk or an alcoholic. I had very little idea of what the war in the Pacific was, aside from knowing that my dad had been there. And I'd seen the picture of the guys on Iwo Jima with the flag. Chris has an interesting historical take on that coming up. Call him drunken Ira Hayes, he will answer anymore. Not the whiskey-drinking Indian, nor the Marine that went to war. The interesting note here is that that was not the first flag that was raised atop Mount Suribachi that day. Uh, actually, the first flag had been raised earlier by a different group of Marines, but some commanding officer had decided that that flag was too small. It wouldn't really be able to be seen all over the island uh, by American soldiers fighting. So let's raise a bigger flag. Ira Hayes was part of that second group who raised the larger flag, uh, which became the iconic image. There they battled up Iwo Jima Hill, 250 men, but only 27 lived to walk back down again. And when the fight was over and old glory raised, among the men who held it high was the Indian Ira Hayes. 
a couple of other items of note here. First of all, this is the only song we're talking about today in which the performer we're speaking about didn't write the actual song. Uh, it was written by the folk singer Peter Lafarge, uh, although, of course, as Jim mentioned, the definitive version hands down is Cash's. He talks about Ira Hayes's upbringing, farming the land of his birth as one of the Pima Indians. From the land of the Pima Indian, a proud and noble band who farmed the Phoenix Valley in Arizona land. Down the ditches a thousand years, the waters grew Ira's people's crops till the white man stole their water rights and the sparkling water stopped. He's not shy to mention how the plight of the Indians became such due to what he calls the white man's greed and how the white man stole their water rights. So I think the song does a really good job of setting up the fact that Ira Hayes is a very complex person. He's not just a one-sided raw, raw hero in the vein of Toby Keith and Alan Jackson that you were mentioning earlier. You know, he's not just puffing up, puffing up his chest and saying, look at me, I'll, I'll kill all of you. You know, he's a complex human being. Now, Ira's folks were hungry and their land grew crops of weeds. When war came, Ira volunteered and forgot the white man's greed. Call him drunken Ira Hayes, he won't answer anymore. Not the whiskey-drinking Indian or the Marine that went to war. We're talking about how this guy comes home from this hellish experience. He's essentially forgotten. He's basically looked down upon for his addiction. But once he's dead, you know what? Let's make sure we give him a hero send-off and talk about what a great guy he was. Instead of sitting there and reflecting on what we could have done to help the man and to prevent this from happening, let's talk about how, boy, he was a great war hero. Let's not forget the people who are out there sacrificing things for us. Between the performance of the Ira Hayes ballad and the message and the emotion and the impact that it had, it wasn't a one-time thing for Cash. You know, he comes back with his own composition at the beginning of the American recordings period. It's a topic that he, like a lot of us, still wrestles with, still feels a need to discuss it, still feels a need to get that topic out there in the public conversation. It was a slow walk in a sad rain, and nobody tried to be John Wayne. I came home, but Tex did not, and I can't talk about the hit he got. Um, Cash is going to be right there the whole way with anybody that is a misfit, a forgotten person, a downtrodden person. And the least we can do is listen. One of the common themes we've been discussing well throughout the whole series of episodes but specifically with today's topic uh, the quality of the songwriting a lot of this discussion is framed around the vietnam era in large part because of the music and the artists that we're talking about 
in large part because in the American frame of reference and mentality, uh, this is still fairly recent for us. I was born during the time when this was just starting to heat up. Chris was born at the time when it's really actively blowing up in our faces. So we have the point of reference here. It's one of the first big history things people our age learned about growing up. In 1968, the great songwriter Jimmy Webb, Wichita lineman, gives us Galveston. Galveston, oh Galveston I still hear your sea waves crashing While I watch the cannons flashing I clean my gun And dream of Galveston The story of a young man who misses his girlfriend back in Texas. He's listening to cannons roaring. He is cleaning his gun. He is a guy who is in an impossible situation and would rather be home with his sweetheart. In 1969, Glenn Campbell really gives us the definitive iconic version of that song. In 1968, we get Crosby, Stills, and Nash with Wooden Ships. Wooden ships on the water, very free and easy. Easy, you know the way it's supposed to be. Silver on the shoreline, let us be. Talking about very free and easy. In 1967, we get Country Joe and the Fish with the Fixin' to Die rag. And it's one, two, three, what are we fighting for? Don't ask me, I don't give a damn. The next stop is Vietnam. And it's five, six, seven, open up early gates. Well, there ain't no time to wonder why. Whoopee, we're all gonna die. In 1969, we get the brilliant John Fogarty and Creedence Clearwater with Fortunate Snow. Some folks are born made to wave the flag Ooh, they're red, white, and blue And when the band plays hail to the chief Ooh, they point the cannon at you now Before those things happen, before we even think to compliment these songwriters and the work that they do, in late 1965, just a year after Lyndon Johnson is elected to his one full proper term as president, just as we are really escalating our role in Vietnam, but it's not quite a huge source of public debate and disagreement, and, and certainly the rallies and the riots have not hit their stride yet. In late 1965, the first genius, way out ahead of all these other great songwriters, Loretta Lynn. This is her second hit 
among her self-composed work, she does emerge over her career to be an exceptional songwriter. And she gives us, in all of two minutes and 14 seconds, Dear Uncle Sam. My darling answered when he got that call from you. But you don't need him like I do. Again, fall 1965. So she is so far out ahead of everybody else that it's just a whiplash for the other songwriters in the late 60s and early 70s. Owen Bradley, her producer, right there putting together an incredibly powerful package. Again, two minutes and 14 seconds. The song and the idea of it has such a quick, immediate impact that within those first six months of 1966, separate from country music, but on the other side of the beautiful state of Tennessee, Isaac Hayes, staff songwriter and piano player at legendary Stax Records in Memphis, creates... Not that far off from dear Uncle Sam, and the message is pretty much the same. I miss my man. I love my country. Please send him home. But Loretta does it first, and she hits so hard that it really is right to talk about her in country music, really in popular music period, that she really starts this wave. I really love my country, but I also love my man. He proud. The message is real clear, dear Uncle Sam. I love my man. I wish he was home. We both love our country. We are trying to walk that line and balance that idea of the larger picture versus the immediate or heartfelt picture. And once Loretta explains the dilemma and the pain involved, there's a knock on the door. And the song ends, we regret to inform you. And I can't believe that this is me, shaken like I am. For it said, I'm sorry to inform you. We all know what happens after that. She doesn't need to say it. But she does this first. Again, 1965. Lyndon Johnson's not even upset yet about what the press and the general American population is thinking about his handling of the situation. 
a lot of Americans aren't even really thinking about the situation at this point. Record comes out as the new year, 1966, begins, and it becomes a big part of Loretta Lynn's live concert repertoire. It becomes something that she, like John Prine a few years later, is going to have to talk about and answer for. And at the tail end of the Vietnam era in May of 1973, Loretta Lynn is interviewed by a Nashville journalist named Dorothy Horstman. And she's asked about the song. And again, to reflect on Loretta's genius and her emotional intelligence, her kindness and her compassion. She's commenting about late 1965. And in the spring of 73, she says, I wrote Dear Uncle Sam when Vietnam was in real bad shape. She is seeing something beyond just the immediate American point of view at that early stage of things. For us, the French and the Vietnamese, they've been in this mess since the late 50s. So, yeah, 1965, Loretta's already seeing it as, and again, she says, her quote, real bad shape. I kind of put myself in the place of some women, many that I've known, who have lost their husband or their boyfriend. Loretta Lynn, um, somebody we talk a lot about on the podcast, uh, she passed away while we were, you know, putting this together, working on it, uh, her music is a big influence. She is one of the gifted songwriters of her generation and her style of music. And Chris is looking at me like, okay, my turn. Chris, please. You touched on an interview that she gave in which she started listing the reasons why she felt it was important for her to record this song. You know, I put myself in the position of a lot of women who I know who have gone through this. And the truth is that this comes at a time where protest is very much not in the mainstream. I mean, as you mentioned, she beat damn near everyone to the punch. Uh, I, I didn't look exhaustively for this, but I did look quite a bit. And the only song I really saw from any genre that was before this that I that I knew fairly well was Eve of Destruction by Barry Maguire. And so we're talking about somebody who really beat almost everyone to the punch in Loretta with Dear Uncle Sam. But keep in mind the differences between those two genres. In rock music, protest songs almost became the norm during the late 60s. And yet in country, they never did. But when you look at the rest of the songs that are on this album, what strikes me is that Loretta pulled this off in a way which would let her step backwards if she needed to. This is the only song on the album that she writes because Dear Uncle Sam is actually one of the two singles released on the album. But when you think about it contextually in the 
societal norm of the time, you can get away with a song like this because it's told from the woman's standpoint. And because she's not saying the war sucks, the war is stupid. I hate the war. We should never be in this war. Death to the war pigs. It's nothing like that. It's, hey, look, I understand that the country needs my husband, but I need him too. And the nice thing about this is that it really opens the door. It opens the door for a lot of things. It opens the door for Johnny's song, The Man in Black. Now, granted, that's released six years later in 1971, but it suddenly becomes okay, at least on some level, to say negative things about war as long as you're not really hammering down on the authorities. The song goes to number four on the country chart. But it's certainly groundbreaking in that it gave a little bit more freedom for others to be heard. Because Loretta hadn't been shut off immediately when she tried to say something negative about war, it kind of just leaves a little bit of a foot in the door for anyone else who wants to try and make their point as well. Thank you to John Prine for not candy coating a damn thing and just going in and saying, hey, this shit needs to stop and we need to stop it. Let's stop making heroes out of people who died when they didn't need to for reasons that didn't need to take them. Thank you to Johnny Cash for popularizing the plight of the American Indian, just period, on the entire Bitter Tears album not only with the Ira Hayes song, but every song on that record is about the American Indians. Uh, there's also a tribute album to that one, which was released in 2014. This is where the Chris Christopherson version uh, of the Ballad of Ira Hayes comes from. And that one features Jillian Welch and David Rawlings. So, you know, these are songs that just carry on over and over again because the message never goes away i think we probably all wish it would go away i think we all probably wish we didn't need to talk about the horrors of war i i think that general sherman would probably really appreciate if we could change the phrase from war is hell to war used to be hell you may say And with all that in mind, uh, it might seem a little odd to turn to John Wayne. He's very obvious sign of a bit of a conservative and romanticized view of war. He deliberately made a film called The Green Berets as his personal, I can afford to make a movie to respond to all the hippies' complaints about Vietnam. But... He is an American institution, good and bad, and he has a drink guide that we have been enjoying. So uh, specifically, hello, Josh, and thank you for serving. And uh, Chris, pour one out for us. 
remember. This one's called The Wild Goose. John Wayne had actually purchased a decommissioned U.S. Navy minesweeper, uh, which he christened with that name. Uh, he turned it into his luxury boat. He was visited by a virtual who's who of the era, including uh, presidents Nixon and Reagan. So let's toast the wild goose, which, by the way, is still in commission in Newport Beach with this yacht appropriate cocktail. For this one, you're going to need one and a half ounces of tequila, one and a half ounces of grapefruit juice, three ounces of cranberry juice, and a lime wedge for garnish. You're going to shake the ingredients with ice and strain into a highball glass. Garnish with a lime wedge. No shit. That's why they say a lime wedge for garnish. True story. Thank you for listening to the Six String Hayride Classic Country Music Podcast. As always, we'd like to remind you to please feel free to reach out to us at sixstringhayride at yahoo.com. Or you can visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash sixstringhayride. What we'd really appreciate is if you would visit patreon.com slash sixstringhayride. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash sixstringhayride. In all instances of the above, the number six is spelled out. For these episodes featuring the John Wayne cocktails, we've been doing drink recipes. So we'd like to invite everyone to send us an email to the aforementioned sixstringhayride at yahoo.com and give us your favorite six-string drinking game. What word or phrase do we say too much, too often, or just right that you should have to take a drink every time you hear and hopefully not die? Uh, folks, thanks very much for listening to us on this episode. For those of you that participated in the service of your home country, thank you very much. For those of you that didn't, the best thing you can do is go up to a veteran and say, you know, I have no way of understanding what you did. I am willing to listen. I am willing to remember. Thank you, folks. We will see you real soon. If you or a veteran you know needs help, please call the Military and Veterans Crisis Line at 800-273-8255. Don't let the cycle continue. Well, folks, thanks again for joining your hosts, Chris Wainscott and Jim O'Malley on the Six String Hayride Classic Country Podcast. We are here for all of your classic country, rockabilly, early rock and roll, little gospel, little blues, a lot of excellent country music-themed recipes. And basically, we are here to keep your musical circle rockin', boppin', and very much unbroken. So thank you for sticking with us. We will see you down the road real soon. And again, whether it's in your home, in your community, wherever it is you do your thing, keep your circle unbroken. Stay well, stay safe, and we'll see you real soon. Oh, can the circle be unbroken by and by, Lord, by and by? There's a bitter home awaiting in the sky.
I'll rejoin them in a song I'm gonna join the family circle at the throne No, the circle won't be broken By and by, Lord, by and by Remember, the force will be with you, always. Always.